Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, mother? Sardonicus by Ray Russell Chapter 1 An S of Vulgar Pretension In the late summer of the year 18, a gratifying series of professional successes had brought me to a state of such fatigue that I had begun seriously to contemplate a long rest on the continent. I had not enjoyed a proper holiday in nearly three years, for in addition to my regular practice, I had been deeply involved in a program of research, and so rewarding had been my progress in this special work, it concerned the ligaments and muscles, and could, it was my hope, be beneficially applied to certain varieties of paralysis, that I was loath to leave the city for more than a week at a time. Being unmarried, I lacked a solicitous wife who might have expressed concern over my health. Thus it was that I had overworked myself to a point that a holiday had become absolutely essential to my well-being. Hence, the letter, which was put in my hand one morning near the end of that summer, was most welcome. When it was first presented to me by my valet at breakfast, I turned it over and over, feeling the weight of its fine paper, which was almost of the heaviness and stiffness of parchment, pondering the large seal of scarlet wax upon which was imprinted a device of such complexity that it was difficult to decipher. Examining finally the hand in which the address had been written, Sir Robert Cargrave, Harley Street, London. It was a feminine hand, that much was certain, and there was a curious touch of familiarity to its delicacy as well as to its clearness, this last an admirable quality far too uncommon in the handwriting of ladies the fresh clarity of that hand. And where had I seen it before? Bespoke a directness that seemed contrary to the well-nigh unfathomable ornamentation of the seal, which, upon closer and more concentrated perusal, I at length concluded to me no more than a single S, but an S whose writhing curls seemed almost to grin presumptuously at one. An S which seemed to be constructed of little else than these grins, an S of such vulgar pretension that I admit to having felt vexed for an instant, and then in the next instant foolish at my own vexation. For surely, I admonished myself, there are things a great deal more vexing than a seal which you have encountered without distemper. Smiling at my foible, I continued to weigh the letter in my hand, searching my mind for a friend or acquaintance whose name began with an S. There was old Shipley of the College of Surgeons, there was Lord Henry Stanton, my waggish and witty friend, and that was the extent of it. Was it Harry? He was seldom in one place for very long, and was a faithful and gifted letter-writer. Yet Harry's bold hand was far from effeminate, and, moreover, he would not use such a seal, unless it were as a lark, as an antic jest between friends. My valet had told me, when he put the letter in my hand, that it had not come by the post, but by special messenger, and although this intelligence had not struck me as remarkable at the time, it now fed my curiosity, and I broke the vexing seal, 
and unfolded the stiff, crackling paper. The message within was written in that same clear, faintly familiar hand. My eye first travelled to the end to find the signature, but the signature, Madame S., told me nothing, for I knew of no Madame S. among my circle. I read the letter. It is before me now as I set down this account, and I shall copy it out verbatim. My dear Sir Robert, it has been close to seven years since last we met. Indeed, at that time you were not yet Sir Robert at all, but plain Robert Cargrave, although some talk of imminent knighthood was in the air. And so I wonder if you will remember Maud Randall. Remember Maud Randall, dear Maud of the bell-like voice, of the chestnut hair and large brown eyes, of a character of such sweetness and vivacity that the young men of London had eyes for no one else. She was of good family, but during a stay in Paris there had been something about injudicious speculation by her father that had diminished the family fortunes to such an extent that the wretched man had taken his own life, and the Randalls had vanished from London society altogether. Maud, or so I had heard, had married a foreign gentleman, and had remained in Europe. It had been sad news, for no young man of London had ever had more doting eyes for Maud than I, and it had pleased my fancy to think that my feelings were, at least in part, reciprocated. Remember Maud Randall. Yes, yes, I almost said aloud, and now, seven years later, she was Madame S., writing in that same hand I had seen countless times on invitations. I continued to read. I often think of you, for, although it may not be seemly to say it, the company of few gentlemen used to please me so much as yours, and the London soirees given by my dear mother, at which you were present, are amongst my most cherished recollections now. But there... Frankness was always my failing, as my mother used to remind me. She, dear kind lady, survived less than a year after my poor father died. But I suppose you know all this. I'm quite well, and we live in great comfort here, although we receive but rarely and are content with our own company most of the time. Mr. S. is a gracious gentleman, but of quiet and retiring disposition, and throngs of people, parties, balls, etc., are retrograde to his temperament. Thus it is a special joy to me that he has expressly asked me to invite you here to the castle for a fortnight, or, if I may give you exact words, for a fortnight at least, but howsoever long as it pleases Sir Robert to stay among such drab folk as he will think us. You see, I told you he was gracious. I must have frowned while reading it, for the words of Mrs. S. were not so much gracious, I thought, as egregious and as vulgar as his absurd seal. Still, I held these feelings in check, for I knew that my emotions towards this man were not a little coloured by jealousy. He, after all, had wooed and won Maud Randall, a young lady of discernment and fine sensibilities. Could she have been capable of wedding an obsequious boor? I thought it not likely. And a castle, such a romantic grandeur, "'Invite you here to the castle,' she had written. "'But where was here?' "'The letter's cover, since it had not come by post, offered no clue. "'Therefore I read on. "'It was indeed only yesterday, in the course of conversation, "'that I was recalling my old life in London, 
and mentioned your name. Mr. S., I thought, was of a sudden interested. Robert Cargrave, he said. There is a well-known physician of that name, but I do not imagine it is the same gentleman. I laughed and told him it was the same gentleman, and that I had known you before you had become so illustrious. Did you know him well? Mr. S. then asked me. And you will think me silly, but I must tell you that for a moment I assumed him to be jealous. Such was not the case, however, as further conversation proved. I told him you had been a friend of my family's and a frequent guest at our house. This is a most happy coincidence, he said. I have long desired to meet Sir Robert Cargrave, and your past friendship with him furnishes you with an excellent opportunity to invite him here for a holiday. And so, Sir Robert, I am complying with his request, and at the same time obeying the dictates of my own inclination, by most cordially inviting you to visit us for as long as you choose. I entreat you to come, for we see so few people here, and it will be a great pleasure to talk with someone from the old days and hear the latest London gossip. Suffer me, then, to receive a letter from you at once. Mr. S. does not trust the post. Hence I have sent this by a servant of ours who was to be in London on special business. Please relay your answer by way of him. I rang for my man. Is the messenger who delivered this letter waiting for a reply? I asked. He's sitting in the vestibule, Sir Robert, he said. You should have told me. Yes, sir. At any rate, send him in. I wish to see him. My man left, and it took me but a minute to dash off a quick note of acceptance. I was ready for the messenger when he was ushered into the room. I addressed him. You are in the employ of Madame... I realised for the first time that I did not know her husband's name. The servant, a taciturn fellow with Slavic features, spoke in a thick accent. I am in the employ of Mr. Sardonicus, sir. Sardonicus? A name as flamboyant as a seal, I thought to myself. Then deliver this note, if you please, to Madame Sardonicus immediately you return. He bowed slightly and took the note from my hand. I shall deliver it to my master straight away, sir, he said. His manner nettled me. I corrected him. To your mistress, I said coldly. Madame Sardonicus will receive your message, sir, he said. I dismissed him, and only then did it strike me that I had not the faintest idea where the castle of Mr. Sardonicus was located. I referred once again to Maud's letter. Please relay your answer by way of him, and pray make it affirmative, for I do hope to make your stay in a pleasant one. I consulted an atlas. The locality, she mentioned, I discovered, was a district in a remote and mountainous region of Bohemia. Filled with anticipation, I finished my breakfast with renewed appetite, and that very afternoon began to make arrangements for my journey. Chapter 2 The Sight of a Giant Skull I am not, as my friend Harry Stanton is, fond of travel for its own sake. Harry has often chided me on this account, calling me a dry-as-dust academician and an incorrigible Londoner, which I suppose I am, for in point of fact few things are more tiresome to me than ships and trains and carriages, and although I have found deep enjoyment and spiritual profit in foreign cities, having arrived, the tedium of travel itself has often made me think twice before starting out on a long voyage. Still, 
In less than a month after I had answered Maud's invitation, I found myself in her adopted homeland. Sojourning from London to Paris, thence to Berlin, finally to Bohemia, I was met at by a coachman who spoke in perfect English, but who managed, in his solemn fashion, to make known to me that he was a member of the staff at Castle Sardonicus. He placed at my disposal a coach drawn by two horses, and after taking my bags, proceeded to drive me on the last leg of my journey. Alone in the coach, I shivered, for the air was brisk, and I was very tired. The road was full of ruts and stones, and the trip was far from smooth. Neither did I derive much pleasure by bending my glance at the view afforded by the windows, for the night was dark, and the country was, at any rate, wild and raw, not made for serene contemplation. The only sounds were the clatter of hooves and wheels, the creak of the coach, and the harsh, unmusical cries of unseen birds. We received but rarely, Maud had written, and now I told myself, little wonder. In this ragged, and one might say, uninhabitable place, far from the graces of civilised society, who indeed is there to be received, or, for the matter of that, to receive one? I sighed, for the desolate landscape and the thought of what might prove a holiday devoid of refreshing incident had combined to cloak my already wearied spirit in a melancholic humour. It was when I was in this condition that Castle Sardonicus met my eye, a dense, hunched outline at first, then, with an instantaneous flicker of moonlight, a great, gaping death's head, the sight of which made me inhale sharply. With the exhalation, I chuckled at myself. Come, come, Sir Robert, I inwardly chided. It is, after all, but a castle, and you are not a green girl who starts at shadows and quails and midnight stories. The castle is situated at the terminus of a long and upward-winding mountain road. It presents a somewhat forbidding aspect to the world, for there is little about it to suggest gaiety or warmth or any of those qualities that might assure the wayfarer of welcome. Rather, this vast edifice of stone exudes an austerity, cold and repellent, a hint of ancient mysteries long buried, an effluvium of medieval dankness and decay. At night, and most particularly on nights when the moon is slim or cloud-enshrouded, it is a heavy blot on the horizon, a shadow only, without feature save for its many turreted outline. And should the moon be temporarily released from her cloudy confinement, her fugitive rays lend scant comfort, for they but serve to throw the castle into sudden, startling chiaroscuro, its windows fleetingly assuming the appearance of sightless, though all-seeing orbs, its portcullis becoming for an instant a gaping mouth, its entire form striking the physical and the mental eye as would the sight of a giant skull. But though the castle had revealed itself to my sight, it was a full quarter of an hour before the coach had creaked its way up the steep and tortuous road to the great gate that barred the castle grounds from intruders. Of iron the gate was wrought, black, it seemed, in the scant illumination, and composed of intricate twists that led, every one of them, 
to a central huge device of many curves, which, in the infrequent glints of moon glow, appeared to smile metallically down, but which, upon gathering my reason about me, I made out to be no more than an enlarged edition of that presumptuous seal, a massive single S. Behind it, at the end of the rutted road, stood the castle itself, dark, save for lights in two of its many windows. Some words in a foreign tongue passed between my coachman and the person behind the gate. The gate was unlocked from within and swung open slowly with a long rising shriek of rusted hinges, and the coach passed through. As we drew near, the door of the castle was flung open, and cheery light spilled out upon the road. The portcullis, which I had previously marked, was evidently a remnant from older days and now inactive. The coach drew to a halt, and I was greeted with great gravity by a butler, whom I saw to be he who had carried Maud's invitation to London. I proffered him a nod of recognition. He acknowledged this and said, Sir Robert, Madame Sardonicus awaits you, and if you will be good enough to follow me, I will take you to her presence. The coachman took charge of my bags, and I followed the butler into the castle. It dated, I thought, to the twelfth or thirteenth century. Suits of armour, priceless relics, I ascertained them to be, stood about the vast halls. Tapestries were in evidence throughout. Strong, heavy, richly carved furniture was everywhere. The walls were of time-defying stone, great grey blocks of it. I was led into a kind of salon, with comfortable chairs, a tea-table, and a spinet. Maud rose to greet me. Sir Robert, she said softly without smiling. How good to see you at last. I took her hand. Dear lady, said I, we meet again. You're looking well and prosperous, she said. I'm in good health, but just now rather tired from the journey. She gave me leave to sit and did so herself, venturing the opinion that a meal and some wine would soon restore me. Mr. Sardonicus will join us soon, she added. I spoke of her appearance, saying that she looked not a day older than when I last saw her in London. This was true in regard to her physical self, for her face bore not a line, her skin was of the same freshness, and her glorious chestnut hair was still rich in colour and gleaming with health. But what I did not speak of was the change in her spirit. She, who had been so gay and vivacious, the delight of soirees was now distant and aloof, of serious mien, unsmiling. I was sorry to see this, but attributed it to the seven years that had passed since her carefree girlhood, to the loss of her loved parents, and even to the secluded life she now spent in this place. I'm eager to meet your husband, I said, and he, Sir Robert, is quite eager to meet you, Maud assured me. He'll be down presently. Meanwhile, do tell me how you've fared in the world. I spoke with some modesty, I hope, of my successes in my chosen field, of the knighthood I had received from the crown. I described my London apartment, laboratory and office. I made mention of certain mutual friends and generally gave her news of London life, speaking particularly of the theatre, for I knew Maud had loved it, and describing Mr. Macready's farewell appearance as Macbeth at the Haymarket. When Maud had last been in London, 
there had been rumours of making an opera house out of Covent Garden Theatre, and I told her that those plans had been carried through. I spoke of the London premiere of Mr. Verdi's latest piece at Her Majesty's. At my mention of these theatres and performances, her eyes lit up, but she was not moved to comment until I spoke of the opera. The opera, she said. Oh, Sir Robert, if you could but know how I miss it. The excitement of a premiere, the ladies and gentlemen in their finery, the thrilling sounds of the overture, and then the curtains rising. She broke off as if ashamed of her momentary transport. But I receive all the latest scores and derive great satisfaction from playing and singing them to myself. I must order the new Verdi from Rome. It is called Ernani, you say. I nodded, adding, with your permission, I will attempt to play some of the more distinctive airs. Oh, pray do, Sir Robert, she said. You will find them perhaps um, excessively modern and dissonant. I sat down at the spinet and played, just possibly, I fear, and with some improvisation, when I could not remember the exact notes, a potpourri of melodies from the opera. She applauded my playing. I urged her to play also, for she was an accomplished keyboard artist and possessed an agreeable voice as well. She complied by playing the minuet from Don Giovanni and then singing Voi che sapete from La Nozze de Figaro. As I stood over her, watching her delicate hands move over the keys, hearing the pure, clear tones of her voice, all my old feelings washed over me in a rush, and my eyes smarted at the unalloyed sweetness and goodness of this lady. When she asked me to join her in the duet, La ci darem la mano, I agreed to do it, although my voice is less than ordinary. On the second singing of the word mano, hand, I was seized by a vagrant impulse and took her left hand in my own. Her playing was hampered, of course, and the music limped for a few measures, and then, my face burning, I released her hand, and we finished out the duet. Wisely, she neither rebuked me for my action, nor gave me encouragement. Rather, she acted as if the rash gesture had never been committed. To mask my embarrassment, I now embarked upon some light chatter, designed to ease whatever tension existed between us. I spoke of many things, foolish things for the most part, and even asked if Mr. Sardonicus had later demonstrated any of the jealousy she had said in her letter that she had erroneously thought him to have exhibited. She laughed at this, and it brightened the room, for it was the first time her face had abandoned its grave expression. Indeed, I was taken by the thought that this was the first display of human merriment I had marked since stepping into the coach. And she said, Oh, no! To the contrary, Mr. Sardonicus said that the closer we had been in the old days, the more he would be pleased. This seemed an odd and even coarse thing for a man to say to his wife, and I jovially replied, I hope Mr. Sardonicus was smiling when he said that. At once Maud's smile vanished from her face. She looked away from me and began to talk of other things. I was dumbfounded. Had my innocent remark given offence? It seemed not possible. A moment later, however, I knew the reason for her strange action for a tall gentleman entered the room with a gliding step, and one look at him explained many things. 
Chapter 3. To Smile Forever. Sir Robert Cargrave, he asked, but he spoke with difficulty. Certain sounds, such as the B in Robert and the V in Cargrave, being almost impossible for him to utter. To shape these sounds, the lips must be used, and the gentleman before me was the victim of some terrible affliction that had caused his lips to be pulled perpetually apart from each other, bearing his teeth in a continuous, ghastly smile. It was the same mirthless grin I had seen once before on the face of a person in the last throes of lockjaw. We physicians have a name for that chilling grimace, a Latin name, and as it entered my mind it seemed to dispel yet another mystery, for the term we use to describe the lockjaw smile is risus sardonicus, a pallor approaching phosphorescence completed his astonishing appearance. Yes, I replied, covering my shock at the sight of his face. Do I have the pleasure of addressing a, a Mr. Sardonicus? We shook hands. He wore a ring on one finger. The stone, I noted, was a sardonyx. After an exchange of courtesies, he said, I have ordered dinner to be served in the large dining hall one hour hence. In the meantime, my valet will show you to your rooms, for I am sure you will wish to refresh yourself after your journey. You're most kind. The valet appeared, a man of grave countenance like the butler and the coachman, and I followed him up a long flight of stone stairs. As I walked behind him, I reflected on the unsmiling faces in this castle, and no longer were they things of wonder, for who would be disposed to smile under the same roof with him who must smile forever? The most spontaneous of smiles would seem a mockery in the presence of that afflicted face. I was filled with pity for Maud's husband. Of all God's creatures, man alone is blessed with the ability to smile. But for the master of Castle Sardonicus, God's great blessing had become a terrible curse. As a physician, my pity was tempered with professional curiosity. His smile resembled the risus of lockjaw. But lockjaw is a mortal disease, and Mr. Sardonicus, his scullish grin notwithstanding, was very much alive. I felt shame for some of my earlier uncharitable thoughts towards this gentleman, for surely such an unfortunate could be forgiven much. What bitterness must fester in his breast! What sharp despair gnaw at his innards! My rooms were spacious and certainly as comfortable as this dank stone housing could afford. A hot tub was prepared, for which my tired and dusty frame was most grateful. As I lay in it, I began to experience the pleasant pangs of appetite. I looked forward to dinner. After my bath, I put on fresh linen and a suit of evening clothes. Then, taking from my bag two small gifts for my host and hostess, a bottle of scent for Maud, a bottle of cigars for her husband, I left my rooms. I was not so foolish as to expect to find my way unaided to the main dining hall, but since I was early, I intended to wander a bit, and let the ancient magnificence of the castle impress itself upon me. Tapestries bearing my host's S were frequently displayed. They were remarkably new, their colours fresh, unlike the faded grandeur of their fellow tapestries. From this, 
and from Mr. Sardonicus's lack of title, I deduced that the castle had not been inherited through a family line, but merely purchased by him, probably from an impoverished nobleman. Though not titled, Mr. Sardonicus evidently possessed enormous wealth. I pondered its source. My ponderings were interrupted by the sound of Maud's voice. I looked up. The acoustical effect in old castles are often strange. I had marked them in our own English castles, and though I stood near neither room nor door of any kind, I could hear Maud speaking in a distressed tone. I was standing at an open window which overlooked a kind of courtyard. Across this court a window was likewise open. I took this to be the window of Maud's room. A voice was in some way being amplified and transported by the circumstantial shape of the courtyard and the positions of the two windows. By listening very attentively I could make out most of her words. She was saying, I shan't, you mustn't ask me, it's unseemly. And then the voice of her husband replied, You shall and will, madam, it is my castle. It is I who decide what is seemly or unseemly, not you. I was embarrassed at overhearing this private conversation on what was obviously a painful subject, so I made to draw away from the window that I might hear no more, but I was restrained by the sound of my own name on Maud's lips. I have treated Sir Robert with courtesy, she said. You must treat him with more than courtesy. Mr. Sardonicus responded, You must treat him with warmth. You must rekindle in his breast those affections he felt for you in other days. I could listen no longer. This exchange was vile. I drew away from the window. What manner of creature was this Sardonicus, who threw his wife into the arms of other men? As a practitioner of medicine, a man dedicated to healing the ills of humankind, I had brought myself to learn many things about the minds of men, as well as about their bodies. I fully believed that in some future time physicians would heal the body by way of the mind, for it is in that terra incognita that all secrets lie hidden. I knew that love has many masks, masks of submission and of oppression, and even more terrible masks that make nature a stranger to herself and turn the truth of God into a lie, as St. Paul wrote. There is even a kind of love, if it can be elevated by that name, that derives its keenest pleasure from the sight of the beloved in the arms of another, these are unpleasant observations, which may one day be codified and studied by healers, but which, until then, may not be thought on for too long, lest the mind grow morbid and stagger under its load of repugnance. With a heavy heart I sought out a servant and asked to be taken to the dining hall. It was some distance away, and by the time I arrived there, Sardonicus and his lady were already at the table awaiting me. He arose, and with that revolting smile indicated a chair. She also arose and took my arm, addressing me as Dear Sir Robert, and leading me to my place. A touch which at any previous time would have gladdened me, I now found distinctly not to my liking. A hollow joviality hung over the dinner-table throughout the meal. Maud's laughter struck me as giddy and false. Sardonicus drank too much wine, and his speech became even more indistinct. I contrived to talk on trivial subjects, 
repeating some anecdotes about the London theatre, which I had hitherto related to Maud, and describing Mr. Macready's interpretations of Macbeth. Some actors, said Sardonicus, interpret the Scottish chieftain as a creature compounded of pure evil, unmingled with good qualities of any kind. Such interpretations are often criticized by those who feel no human being can be so unremittingly evil. Do you agree, Sir Robert? No, I said evenly. Then, looking Sardonicus full in the face, I added, I believe. It is entirely possible for a man to possess not a single one of the virtues, to be a demon in human flesh. Quickly I embarked upon a discussion of the character of Iago, who took ghoulish delight in tormenting his fellow man. The dinner was, I suppose, first-rate, and the wine an honourable vintage, but I confess to tasting little of what was placed before me. At the end of the meal, Maud left us for a time, and Sardonicus escorted me into the library, whither he ordered brandy to be brought. He opened the box of cigars, expressed his admiration of them and gratitude for them, and offered them to me. I took one, and we both smoked. The smoking of the cigar made Sardonicus look even more grotesque. Being unable to hold it in his lips, he clenched it in his constantly visible teeth, creating a unique spectacle. Brandy was served. I partook a bit freely, though I am not customarily given to heavy drinking. For now, I deemed it to be beneficial to my dampened spirits. You used the word ghoulish a few moments ago, Sir Robert, said Sardonicus. It is one of those words one uses so easily in conversation. One utters it without stopping to think of its meaning. But in my opinion... It is not a word to be used lightly. When one uses it, one should have in one's mind a firm, unwavering picture of a ghoul. Perhaps I did, I said. Perhaps, he admitted, and perhaps not. Let us obtain a precise definition of the word. He rose and walked to one of the bookcases that lined the room's walls. He reached for a large two-volume dictionary. Let me see, he murmured. We desire volume one from A to M, do we not? Now then, Guy, <laughs> Gherkin, Ghetto, Goom? An odd word, eh, Sir Robert? To search for game in the dark. <laughs> Ghost. Ah, ghoul. Among Eastern nations, an imaginary evil being who robs graves and feeds upon corpses. One might say, then, that he gooms. Sardonicus chuckled. He returned to his chair and helped himself to more brandy. When you described Iago's actions as ghoulish, he continued, did you think of him as the inhabitant of an Eastern nation? or an imaginary being as against the reality of Othello and Desdemona? And did you mean seriously to suggest that it was his custom to rob graves and then to feed upon the disgusting nourishment he found therein? I used the word in a figurative sense, I replied. Ah, said Sardonicus, that is because you are English and... Do not believe in ghouls. Were you a middle European as am I, 
you would believe in their existence and would not be tempted to use the word other than literally. In my country, I was born in Poland. We understood such things. I, in point of fact, have known a ghoul. He paused for a moment and looked at me, then said, You English are so blasé, nothing shocks you. I sit here and tell you of a thing of dreadful import, and you do not even blink your eyes. Can it be because you do not believe me? It would be churlish to doubt the word of my host, I replied. And an Englishman may be many things, but never a churl, eh, Sir Robert? Let me refill your glass, my friend, and then let me tell you about ghouls, which, by the way, are by no means imaginary, as that stupid lexicon would have us think, and which are not restricted to Eastern nations. Neither do they necessarily feed upon carrion flesh, although they are interested, most interested, in the repellent contents of graves. Let me tell you a story from my own country, Sir Robert, a story that, if I have any gift at all as a spinner of tales, will create in you a profound belief in ghouls. You will be entertained, I hope, but I also hope you will add to your learning. You will learn, for example, how low a human being can sink, how truly monstrous a man may become. Chapter 4 A Graveyard Tale You must transport your mind, said Sardonicus, back a few years into a rural region of my homeland. You must become acquainted with the family of country folk, hard-working, law-abiding, God-fearing, of moderate means, the head of which was a simple good man named Tadeusz Boleslavski. He was an even-tempered personage, kindly disposed to all men, the loving husband of a devoted wife and father of five strong boys. He was also a firm churchman, seldom even taking the Lord's name in vain. The painted women who plied their trade in certain elaborate houses of the nearest large city, Warsaw, held no attraction for him, though several of his masculine neighbors on their visits to the metropolis succumbed to such blandishments with tidal regularity. Neither did he drink in excess. A glass of beer with his evening meal a toast or two in wine on special occasions. No, hard liquor, strong language, fast women, these were not the weaknesses of Tadeusz Boleslavski. His weakness was gambling. Every month he would make the trip to Warsaw to sell his produce at the markets and to buy certain necessaries for his home. While his comrades visited the drinking and wenching houses, Tadeusz would attend strictly to business affairs, except for one minor deviation. He would purchase a lottery ticket, 
place it securely in a small, tight pocket of his best waistcoat, which he wore only on Sundays and on his trips to the city, then put it completely out of his mind until the following month, when, on reaching the city, he would remove it from his pocket and closely scan the posted list of winners. Then, after methodically tearing the ticket to shreds, for Tadeusz never lived to win a lottery, he would purchase another. This was a ritual with him. He performed it every month for twenty-three years. And the fact that he never won did not discourage him. His wife knew of this habit, but since it was the good man's only flaw, she never remarked upon it. Outside I could hear the wind howling dismally. I took more brandy as Sardonicus continued. Years passed. Three of the five sons married. Two, Henrik and Marek, the youngest, were still living with their parents when Tadeusz, who had been of sturdy health, collapsed one day in the fields and died. I will spare you an account of the family's grief, how the married sons returned with their wives to attend the obsequies of the burial in the small graveyard of that community. The good man had left few possessions, but these few were divided, according to his written wish, among his survivors, with the largest share going, of course, to the eldest son. Though this was custom, the other sons could not help feeling a trifle disgruntled, but they held their peace for the most part, especially the youngest, Marek, who was perhaps the most amiable of them, and the lad was by his nature quiet and interested in improving his lot through the learning he found in books. Imagine, sir, the amazement of the widow when, a full three weeks after the interment of her husband, she received word by men returning from Warsaw that the lottery ticket Tadeusz had purchased had now been selected as the winner. It was a remarkable irony, of course, but conditions had grown hard for the poor woman and would grow harder when her husband died. So she had no time to reflect upon that irony. She set about looking through her husband's possessions for the lottery tickets. Drawers were emptied upon the floor. Boxes and cupboards were ransacked. The family Bible was shaken out. Years before, Tadius had been in the habit of temporarily hiding money under a loose floorboard in the bedroom. This cavity was thoroughly but vainly plumbed. The sons were sent for. Among the few personal effects they had been bequeathed, did the ticket languish there? In the snuff-box, in an article of clothing. And at that sir Robert, the eldest son leapt up. An article of clothing, he cried. Father always wore his Sunday waistcoat to the city when he purchased the lottery tickets. The very waistcoat in which he was buried. Yes, yes, the other sons chorused, saving Marek. And plans began to be laid for the exhuming of the dead man. But the widow spoke firmly. Your father rests peacefully, she said. He must not be disturbed. No amount of gold would soothe our hearts if we disturbed him. The sons protested with vehemence, but the widow stood her ground. No son of mine will profane his father's grave unless he first kills his mother. Grumbling, the sons withdrew their plans. But that night, Marek awoke to find his mother gone from the house. He was frightened, for this was not like her. 
Intuition sent him to the graveyard, where he found her keeping a lonely vigil over the grave of her husband, protecting him from the greed of grave robbers. Marek implored her to come out of the cold, to return home. She, at first, refused. Only when Marek offered to keep vigil all night himself did she relent and return home, leaving her youngest son to guard the grave from profanation. Marek waited a full hour. Then he produced from under his shirt a small shovel. He was a strong boy, and the greed of a younger son who has been deprived of inheritance lent added strength to his arms. He dug relentlessly, stopping seldom for rest until, finally, the coffin was uncovered. He raised the creaking lid. An overpowering fetor filled his nostrils and nearly made him faint. Gathering courage, he searched the pockets of the moldering waistcoat. The moon proved to be his undoing, Sir Robert, for suddenly its rays, hitherto hidden, struck the face of his father, and at the sight of that face the boy recoiled and went reeling against the wall of the grave, the breath forced from his body. Now you must know that the mere sight of his father even in an advanced state of decomposition, he had steeled himself to withstand. But what he had not foreseen. Here Sardonicus leaned close to me, and his pallid, grinning head filled my vision. What he had not foreseen, my dear sir, was that the face of his father in the rigor of death, would look directly and hideously upon him. Sardonicus's voice became an ophidian hiss. And Sir Robert, he added, most terrible and most unforeseen of all, the dead lips were drawn back from the teeth in a constant and soul-shattering smile. Chapter 5 The Remembrance of That Night I know not whether it was the ghastliness of his story, or the sight of his hideous face so close to mine, or the cheerless keening of the wind outside, or the brandy I had consumed, or all of these in combination. But when Sardonicus uttered those last words, my heart was clutched by a cold hand, and for a moment, a long moment ripped from the texture of time, I was convinced beyond doubt and beyond logic that the face I looked into was the face of that cadaver reanimated by obscure arts to walk among the living, dead, though not dead. The moment of horror passed at length, and reason triumphed. Sardonicus, considerably affected by his own tale, sat back in his chair, trembling. Before too long he spoke again. The remembrance of that night, Sir Robert, though it is now many years past, 
fills me still with dread. You will appreciate this when I tell you what you have perhaps already guessed, that I am that ghoulish son, Marek. I had not guessed it, but since I had no wish to tell him that I had for an instant thought he was the dead father, I said nothing. When my senses returned, said Sardonicus, I scrambled out of the grave and ran as swiftly as my limbs would carry me. I had reached the gate of the graveyard when I was smitten by the fact that I had not accomplished the purpose of my mission. The lottery ticket remained in my father's pocket. But surely, I started to say, surely I ignored the fact and continued to run? No, Sir Robert, my terror notwithstanding, I halted and forced myself to retrace those hasty steps. My fear notwithstanding, I descended once more into that noisome grave. My disgust notwithstanding, I reached into the pocket of my decaying father's waistcoat and extracted the ticket. I need hardly add that this time I averted my eyes from his face. But the horror was not behind me. Indeed, it had only begun. I reached my home at a late hour and my family was asleep. For this I was grateful since my clothes were covered with soil and I still trembled from my fearful experience. I quietly poured water into a basin and prepared to wash some of the graveyard dirt from my face and hands. In performing my ablutions, I looked up into a mirror and screamed so loudly as to wake the entire house. My face was as you see it now, a replica of my dead father's, the lips drawn back in a perpetual mocking grin. I tried to close my mouth, but I could not. The muscles were immovable, as if held in the jellied rigor of death. I could hear my family stirring at my scream, and since I did not wish them to look upon me, I ran from the house, never, Sir Robert, to return. As I wandered the rural roads, my mind sought the cause of the affliction that had been visited upon me. Though by the country lad I had read much, and I had a blunt, rational mind that was not susceptible to the easy explanations of the supernatural, I would not believe that God had placed a malediction upon me to punish me for my act. I would not believe that some black force from beyond the grave had reached out to stamp my face. At length, I began to believe it was the massive shock that had forced my face to its present state, and that my great guilt had helped to shape it even as my father's dead face was shaped. Shock and guilt. Strong powers not from God above or the fiend below, but from within my own breast, my own brain, my own soul. Let me bring this history to a hasty close, Sir Robert. You need only know that despite my blighted face, I redeemed the lottery ticket and thus gained an amount of money that will not seem large to you, but which was more than I had ever seen before that time. 
It was the fulcrum from which I plied the lever that was to make me, by dint of shrewd speculation, one of the richest men in Central Europe. Naturally, I sought out physicians and begged them to restore my face to its previous state. None succeeded, though I offered them vast sums. My face remained fixed in this damnable, unceasing smile, and my heart knew the most profound despair imaginable. I could not even pronounce my own name. By a dreadful irony, the initial letters of my first and last names were impossible for my frozen lips to form. This seemed the final indignity. I will admit to you that at this period I was perilously near the brink of self-destruction. But the spirit of preservation prevailed, and I was saved from that course. I changed my name. I had read of the Rissus Sardonicus, and its horrible aptness appealed to my bitter mind. So I became Sardonicus, a name I can pronounce with no difficulty. Sardonicus paused and sipped his brandy. You are wondering, he then said, in what way my story concerns you. I could guess, but I said, I am. Sir Robert, he said, you are known throughout the medical world. Most laymen perhaps have not heard of you, but a layman such as I, a layman who avidly follows the medical journals for tidings of any recent discoveries in the curing of paralyzed muscles, has heard of you again and again. Your researches into these problems have earned you high professional regard. Indeed, they have earned you a knighthood. For some time it has been in my mind to visit London and seek you out. I have consulted many physicians, renowned men, Keller in Berlin, Morignac in Paris, Buonagente in Milan, and none have been able to help me. My despair has been utter. It prevented me from making the long journey to England, but when I heard sublime coincidence that my own wife had been acquainted with you, I took heart. Sir Robert, I entreat you to heal me, to lift from me this curse to make me look once more like a man, that I may walk in the sun again among my fellow human beings as one of them, rather than as a fearsome gargoyle to be shunned and feared and ridiculed. Surely you cannot, will not deny me. My feelings for Sardonicus, pendulum-like, again swung towards his favour, his story, his plight, had rent my heart, and I reverted to my earlier opinion that such a man should be forgiven much. The strange overheard conversation between Maud and him was momentarily forgotten. I said, I will examine you, Mr. Saldonicus. You are right to ask me. We must never abandon hope. He clasped his hands together. Ah, sir, may you be blessed forever. I performed the examination then and there, Although I did not tell him this, never had I encountered muscles as rigid as those of his face. They could only be compared to stone, so inflexible were they. Still, I said, tomorrow 
we will begin treatment, heat and massage. These have been tried, he said hopelessly. Massage differs from one pair of hands to another, I replied. I have had success with my own techniques, and therefore place faith in them. Be comforted then, sir, and share my faith. He seized my hand in this. I do, he said, I must. For if you, if even you, Sir Robert Cargrave, fail me. He did not complete the sentence, but his eyes assumed an aspect so bitter, so full of hate, so strangely cold yet flaming, that they floated in my dreams that night. Chapter 6 an abyss of humiliation and shame. I slept not well, awakening many times in a fever compounded of drink and turbulent emotions. When the first rays of morning crept onto my pillow, I arose little refreshed. After a cold tub and a light breakfast in my room, I went below to a salon whence music issued. Maud was already there playing a pretty little piece upon the spinet. She looked up and greeted me. "'Good morning, Sir Robert.' Do you know the music of Mr. Gottschalk? He is an American pianist. This is his maiden's blush. Amiable, is it not? Most amiable, I replied dutifully, although I was in no mood for the embroideries of politesse. Maud soon finished the piece and closed the album. She turned to me and said in a serious tone, I have been told what you are going to do for my poor husband, Sir Robert. I can scarce express my gratitude. There is no need to express it, I assured her. As a physician, as well as your dear old friend, I could do no less. I hope you understand, however, that a cure is not a certainty. I will try, and I will try to the limit of my powers, but beyond that, I can promise nothing. Her eyes shone with supplication. Oh, cure him, Sir Robert, that I beg of you. I understand your feelings, madam, he said. It is fitting that you should hope so fervently for his recovery. A devoted wife could feel no other way. Oh, sir, she said, and into her voice crept now a harshness. You misunderstand. My fervent hope springs from unalloyed selfishness. How may that be, I asked. If you do not succeed in curing him, she told me, I will suffer. I understand that, but no. You do not understand, she said, but I can tell you a little more without offending. Some things are better left unspoken. Suffice it to be said that, in order to urge you towards an ultimate effort to the limit of your powers, as you have just said, my husband intends to hold over your head the threat of punishment. This is monstrous, I cried. It cannot be tolerated. But in what manner, pray, would he dare punish you? Surely he would not beat you. I wish he would be content with a mere beating, she groaned. But his cleverness knows a keener torture. No, he holds over me and over you through me a punishment far greater, a punishment, believe me, so loathsome to the sensibilities, so unequivocally vile and degraded that my mind shrinks from contemplating it. Spare me your further questions, sir, I implore you or to describe it would plunge me into an abyss of humiliation and shame. She broke into sobbing, and tears coursed down her cheeks. No longer able to restrain my tender feelings for her, I flew to her side and took her hands in mine. Maud, I said, may I call you that? In the past I addressed you only as Miss Randall. At present I may only call you Madame Sardonicus. 
But in my heart, then, as now, you are, you always have been, you always will be, simply Maud, my own dear Maud. Robert, she sighed, dearest Robert, I have yearned to hear my Christian name from your lips all these long years. The warmth we feel, I said, may never, with honour, reach fulfilment, but trust me, dearest Maud, I will in some wise deliver you from the tyranny of that creature. This I vow. I have no hope, she said, save in you. Whether I go on as I am, or am subjected to an unspeakable horror, rests with you. My fate is in your hands, these strong, healing hands, Robert. A voice dropped to a whisper. Fail me not, oh, fail me not. Govern your fears, I said, return to your music, be of good spirits, or, if you cannot, make a show of it. I'll go now to treat your husband, and also to confront him with what you have told me. Do not, she cried, do not, I beseech you, Robert, lest, in the event of your failure, he devise foul embellishments upon the agonies into which you will cast me. Very well, I said, I will not speak of this to him, but my heart aches to learn the nature of the torments you fear. Ask no more, Robert, she said, turning away. Go to my husband. Cure him. Then I will no longer fear those torments. I pressed her dear hand and left the salon. Sardonicus awaited me in his chambers. Thither, quantities of hot water and stacks of towels had been brought by the servants upon my orders. Sardonicus was stripped to the waist, displaying a trunk strong and of good musculature but with the same near-phosphorescent pallor of his face. It was, I now understood, the pallor of one who has avoided daylight for years. As you see, sir, he greeted me, I am ready for your ministrations. I bade him recline upon his couch and began the treatment. Never have I worked so long with so little reward. After alternating applications of heat and of massage, over a period of three and a quarter hours, I had made no progress. The muscles of his face were still as stiff as marble. They had not relaxed for an instant. I was mortally tired. He ordered our luncheon brought to us in his chambers, and after a short respite I began again. The clock told six when I at last sank into a chair, shaking with exhaustion and strain. His face was exactly as before. What remains to be done, sir? he asked me. I will not deceive you, I said. It is beyond my skill to alleviate your condition. I can do no more. He rose swiftly from the couch. You must do more, he shrieked. You are my last hope. Sir, I said, new medical discoveries are ever being made. Place your trust in him who created you. Cease the detestable gibberish at once, he snapped. Your pooling sentiments sicken me. Resume the treatment. I refused. I have applied all my knowledge, all my art to your affliction, I assured him. To resume the treatment would be idle and foolish, for, as you have divined, the condition is a product of your own mind. At dinner last night, counted Sardonicus, we spoke of the character of Macbeth. Do you not remember the words he addressed his doctor? Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow. Raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet, oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of the perilous stuff 
which weighs upon the heart. I remember them, I said, and I remember as well the doctor's reply. Therein the patient must minister to himself. I arose and started for the door. One moment, Sir Robert, he said. I turned. Forgive my precipitate outburst a moment ago. However, the mental nature of my affliction notwithstanding, and even though this mode of treatment has failed, surely there are other treatments. None, I said, that have been sufficiently tested. None I would venture to use upon a human body. Ah, he cried, then other treatments do exist. I shrugged. Think not of them, sir. They are at present unavailable to you. I pitied him and added, I'm sorry. Doctor, he said, I implore you to use whatever treatment exists, be they ever so untried. They are fraught with danger, I said. Danger, he laughed. Danger of what? Of disfigurement. Surely no man has ever been more disfigured than I. Of death? I am willing to gamble my life. I am not willing to gamble your life, I said. All lives are precious, even yours. Sir Robert, I will pay you a thousand pounds. This is not a question of money. Five thousand pounds, Sir Robert. Ten thousand. No, he sank onto the couch. Very well, he said. Then I will offer you the ultimate inducement. Were it a million pounds, I said, you could not sway me. The inducement I speak of, he said, is not money. Will you hear? I sat down. Speak, sir, I said, since that is your wish. But nothing will persuade me to use a treatment that might cost you your life. Sir Robert, he said after a pause. Yesterday Eve, when I came down to meet you for the first time, I heard happy sounds in the salon. You were singing a charming melody with my wife. Later I could not help but notice the character of your glances toward her. They were not reciprocated, sir, I told him, and herewith I offer you a most abject apology for my unbecoming conduct. You will obscure my point, he said. You are a friend of hers from the old days in London. At that period you felt an ardent affection for her, I would guess. This is not surprising for she is a lady whose face and form promise voluptuous delights, and yet a lady whose manner is most decorous and correct. I would guess further that your ardor has not diminished over the years, that at the sight of her the embers have burst into a flame. No, sir, hear me out. What would you say, Sir Robert, were I to tell you that you may quench that flame. I frowned. Your meaning, sir? Must I speak even more plainly? I am offering you a golden opportunity to requite the love that burns in your heart, to requite it in a single night, if that will suffice you, or over an extended period of weeks, months, a year, if you will, as long as you need. Scoundrel! I roared, leaping up. He heeded me not, but went on speaking. As my guest, Sir Robert, I offer you a veritable oriental paradise of unlimited raptures. He laughed, then entered into a catalogue of his wife's excellencies. Consider, sir, he said, 
that matchless bosom. Hmm? Like alabaster which has been imbued with the pink of a rose. Those creamy limbs. Enough, I cried. I will hear no more of your foulness. I strode to the door. Yes, you will, Sir Robert, he said immediately. You will hear a good deal more of my foulness. You will hear what I plan to do to your beloved Maud should you fail to relieve me of this deformity. Again I stopped and turned. I said nothing, but waited for him to speak further. I perceive that I have caught your interest, he said. Hear me, for if you think I spoke foully before, you will soon be forced to agree that my earlier words were, by comparison, as blameless as the book of common prayer. If rewards do not tempt you, then threats may coerce you. In fine, Maud will be punished if you fail, Sir Robert. She is an innocent. Just so, hence the more exquisite and insupportable to you should be the thought of her punishment. My mind reeled. I could not believe such words were being uttered. Deep in the bowels of this old castle, said Sardonicus, are dungeons. Suppose I were to tell you that my intention is to drag my wife thither and stretch her smooth body to unendurable length upon the rack. You wouldn't dare, I cried. My daring or lack of it is not the issue here. I speak of the rack only that I may go on to assure you that Maud would infinitely prefer that dreadful machine to the punishment I have in truth designed for her. I will describe it to you. You will wish to be seated, I think. Chapter 7 Entertainment for a Monster I will stand, I said. As you please. Sardonicus himself sat down. Perhaps you have marveled at the very fact of Maud's marriage to me. When the world was so full of personable men, men like yourself who adored her, why did she choose to wed a monster, a creature abhorrent to the eyes and who did not, moreover, have any redeeming grace of spiritual beauty or kindness or charm? I first met Maud Randall in Paris, I say met, but it would be truer simply to say I saw her from my hotel window, in fact. Even in Paris society, which abounds in ladies of remarkable pulchritude, she was to be remarked upon. You, perhaps, would say I fell in love with her, but I dislike that word, love and will merely say that the sight of her smote my senses with most agreeable emphasis. I decided to make her mine. But how? By presenting my irresistibly handsome face to her view. Hardly. I began. Methodically. I hired secret operatives to find out everything about her and about her mother and father, both of whom were then alive. I discovered that her father was in the habit of speculating, so I saw to it that he received some supposedly trustworthy but very bad advice. He speculated heavily and was instantly ruined. 
I must admit I had not planned his consequent suicide, but when that melancholy event occurred, I rejoiced, for it worked to my advantage. I presented myself to the bereaved widow and daughter, telling them the excellent qualities of Mr. Randall were widely known in the world of affairs, and that I considered myself almost a close friend. I offered to help them in any possible way. By dint of excessive humility and persuasiveness, I won their trust and succeeded in diminishing their aversion to my face. This, you must understand, from first to last, occupied a period of many months. I spoke nothing of marriage and made no sign of affection towards the daughter for at least six of these months, when I did again, with great respect and restraint, she gently refused me. I retreated gracefully, saying only that I hoped I might remain her and her mother's friend. She replied that she sincerely shared that hope, for although she could never look upon me as an object of love, she indeed considered me a true friend. The mother, who pined excessively after the death of the father, soon expired. Another incident unplanned, but welcomed by me. Now the lovely child was alone in the world in a foreign city with no money, no one to guide her, no one to fall back upon, save kindly Mr. Sardonicus. I waited many weeks, then I proposed marriage again. For several days she continued to decline the offer, but her declinations grew weaker and weaker, until at length, on one day, she said this to me, Sir, I esteem you highly as a friend and benefactor, but... My other feelings towards you have not changed. If you could be satisfied with such a singular condition, if you could agree to enter into marriage with a lady and yet look upon her as no more than a companion of kindred spirit, if the prospect of a dispassionate and childless marriage does not repulse you, as well it might, then, sir, my unhappy circumstances would compel me to accept your kind offer. Instantly I told her my regard for her was of the purest and most elevated variety, that the urgings of the flesh were unknown to me, that I lived on a spiritual plane, and desired only her sweet and stimulating companionship through the years. Well, this, of course, was a lie. The diametric opposite was true. But I hoped by this falsehood to lure her into marriage, after which, by slow and strategic process, I could bring about her submission and my rapture. She still was hesitant, for, as she frankly told me, she believed that love was a noble and integral part of marriage, and that marriage without it could only be a hollow thing, and that, though I knew not the urgings of the flesh, she could not with honesty say the same of herself. Yet... She reiterated that, uh, so far as my own person was concerned, a platonic relationship was all that could ever exist between us. I calmed her misgivings. We were married not long after. And now, Sir Robert, I will tell you a surprising thing. I have confessed myself partial to earthly pleasures. As a physician and as a man of the world, you are aware that a gentleman of strong appetites 
may not curb them for very long without fomenting turmoil and distress in his bosom. And yet, sir, not once in the years of our marriage, not once, I say, have I been able to persuade or cajole my wife into relenting and breaking the stringent terms of our marriage agreement. Each time I have attempted, she has recoiled from me with horror and disgust. This is not because of an abhorrence of all things fleshly by her own admission, but because of my monstrous face. Perhaps now you will better understand the vital necessity for this cure, and perhaps also you will understand the full extent of Maud's suffering should you fail to effect that cure. For mark me well, if you fail, my wife will be made to become a true wife to me, by main force, and not for one fleeting hour, but every day and every night of her life, whensoever I say, in whatsoever manner I choose to express my conjugal privilege. As an afterthought, he added, I am by nature imaginative. I had been shocked into silence. I could only look upon him with disbelief. He spoke again. If you deem it a light punishment, Sir Robert, then you do not know the depth of her loathing for my person. You do not know the revulsion that wells up inside her when I but place my fingers upon her arm. You do not know what mastery of her very gorge is required of her when I kiss her hand. Think, then, think of the abomination she would feel were my attentions to grow more ardent, more demanding. It would unseat her mind, sir, of that I am sure, for she would as soon embrace a reptile. Sardonicus arose and put on his shirt. I suggest we both begin dressing for dinner, he said. Whilst you are dressing, reflect. Ask yourself, Sir Robert, could you ever again look upon yourself with other than shame and loathing if you were to sacrifice the beautiful and blameless Maud Randall on an altar of the grossest depravity. Consider how ill you would sleep in your London bed night after night, knowing what she was suffering at that very moment, suffering because you abandoned her, because you allowed her to become an entertainment for a monster. Chapter 8. A Token of Detestation The days that passed after that time were, in the main, tedious, yet filled with anxiety. During them, certain supplies were being brought from London and other places. Sardonicus spared no expense in procuring for me anything I said was necessary to treatment. I avoided his society as much as I could, shunning even his table, and instructing the servants to bring me my meals to my rooms. On the other hand, I sought out the company of Maud, endeavouring to comfort her and allay her fears. In those hours when her husband was occupied with business affairs, we talked together in the salon and played music. Thus, there were days spotted with small pleasures that seemed the greater for having been snatched in the shadow of wretchedness. I grew to know Maud in that time better than I had ever known her in London. 
Adversity stripped the layers of ceremony from our Congress, and we spoke directly. I came to know her warmth, but I came to know her strength too. I spoke outright of my love, though in the next breath I assured her I was aware of the hopelessness of that love. I did not tell her of the reward her husband had offered me, and which I had refused, and I was gladdened to learn, as I did by indirection, that Sardonicus, though he had abjured her to be excessively cordial to me, had not revealed the ultimate and ignoble purpose of that cordiality. Robert, she said once, is it likely that he'll be cured? I did not tell her how unlikely it was. For your sake, Maud, I said, I will persevere more than I have ever done in my life. At length a day arrived when all the necessaries had been gathered. Some plants from the new world, certain equipment from London, and a vital instrument from Scotland. I worked long and late in complete solitude, distilling a needed liquor from the plants. The next day dogs were brought to me alive and carried out dead. Three days after that a dog left my laboratory alive and my distilling labours came to an end. I informed Sardonicus that I was ready to administer the treatment. He came to my laboratory and I imagined there was almost a gloating triumph in his immobile smile. Such are the fruits of concentrated effort, he said. Man is an indolent creature, but light the fire of fear under him. And what miracles is he not capable of? Speak not of miracles, I said. The prayers would do you no harm now, for you will soon be in peril of your life. I motioned him towards a table and bade him lie upon it. He did so, and I commenced explaining the treatment to him. The explorer Magellan, I said, wrote of a substance used on darts by the savage inhabitants of the South American continent. It killed instantly, dropping large animals in their tracks. The substance was derived from certain plants, and it is, in essence, the same substance I have been occupied in extracting these past days. A poison, Sir Robert, he asked wryly. When used full strength, I said, it kills by bringing about a total relaxation of the muscles particularly the muscles of the lungs and heart. I have long thought that the dilution of that poison might beneficially slacken the rigidly tensed muscles of paralysed patients. Most ingenious, sir, he said. I must warn you, I went on, that this distilment has never been used on a human subject. It may kill you. I must perforce urge you again not to insist upon its use, to accept your lot and to remove the threat of punishment you now hold over your wife's head. You seek to frighten me, doctor, chuckled Sardonicus, to plant distrust in my bosom. But I fear you not. An English knight and a respected physician would never do a deed so dishonorable as to wittingly kill a patient under his care. You would be hamstrung by your gentleman's code as well as by your professional oath. Your virtues are, in short... My vice's best ally. I bristled. I am no murderer such as you, I said. If you force me to use this treatment, I will do everything in my power to ensure its success. But I cannot conceal from you the possibility of your death. See to it that I live, he said flatly. For if I die, my men will kill both you and my wife. They will not kill you quickly. See to it also that I am cured, lest Maud be subjected to a fate she fears more than the slowest of tortures. I said nothing. 
Then bring me this elixir straightway, he said, and let me drink it off and make an end of this. It is not to be drunk, I told him. He laughed. Is it your plan to smear it on darts like the savages? Your jest is most apposite, I said. I indeed plan to introduce it into your body by means of a sharp instrument, a new instrument not yet widely known, that was sent to me from Scotland. The original suggestion was put forth in the University of Oxford some two hundred years ago by Dr. Christopher Wren, but only recently, through development by my friend Dr. Wood of Edinburgh, has it seemed practical. It is no more than a syringe, I showed him the instrument, attached to a needle, but the needle is hollow, so that when it punctures the skin, it may carry healing drugs directly into the bloodstream. The medical arts will never cease earning my admiration, said Sardonicus. I filled the syringe. My patient said, Wait. Are you afraid? I asked. Since that memorable night in my father's grave, he replied, I have not known fear. I had a surfeit of it then. It will last out my lifetime. No, I simply wish to give instructions to one of my men. He rose from the table and, going to the door, told one of his helots to bring Madame Sardonicus to the laboratory. Why must she be here? I asked. The sight of her, he said, may serve you as a remembrancer of what awaits her in the event of my death, or of that other punishment she may expect should your treatment prove ineffectual. Maud was brought into our presence. She looked upon my equipment, the bubbling retorts and tubes, the pointed syringe with amazement and fright. I began to explain the principle of the treatment to her, but Sardonicus interrupted, Madam is not one of your students, Sir Robert. It is not necessary. She know the details. Delay no longer. Begin at once. He stretched out upon the table again, fixing his eyes upon me. I proffered Maud a comforting look and walked over to my patient. He did not wince as I drove the needle of the syringe into the left and then the right side of his face. Now, sir, I said, and the tremor in my voice surprised me. We must wait a period of ten minutes. I joined Maud and talked to her in low tones, keeping my eyes always upon my patient. He stared at the ceiling. His face remained solidified in that unholy grin. Precisely ten minutes later, a short gasp escaped him. I rushed to his side and Maud followed close behind me. We watched with consuming fascination as that clenched face slowly softened, relaxed, changed the lips drawing closer and closer to each other, gradually covering those naked teeth and gums, the graven creases unfolding and becoming smooth. Before a minute had passed, we were looking down upon the face of a serenely handsome man. His eyes flashed with pleasure, and he made as if to speak. No, I said, do not attempt speech yet. The muscles of your face are so slackened that it is beyond your power at present to move your lips. This condition will pass. My voice rang with exultation, and for the moment our enmity was forgotten. He nodded, then leapt from the table and dashed to a mirror which hung on a wall nearby. Though his face could not yet express his joy, his whole body seemed to unfurl in a great gesture of triumph, and a muffled cry of happiness burst in his throat. He turned and seized my hand. Then he looked full into Maud's face. After a moment she said, I'm happy for you, sir, and looked away.
A rasping laugh sounded in his throat, and he walked to my workbench, tore a leaf from one of my notebooks and scribbled upon it. This he handed to Maud, who read it and passed it to me. The writing said, Fear not, lady, you will not be obliged to endure my embraces. I know full well that the restored beauty of my face will weigh not a jot in the balance of your attraction and repugnance. By this document I dissolve our pristine marriage. You, who have been a wife only in name, are no longer even that. I give you your freedom. I looked up from my reading. Sardonicus had been writing again. He ripped another leaf from the notebook and handed it directly to me. It read, This paper is your safe conduct out of the castle and into the village. Gold is yours for the asking, but I doubt if your English scruples will countenance the accepting of my money. I will expect you to have quit these premises before morning, taking her with you. We will be gone within the hour, I told him, and guided Maud towards the door. Before we left the room I turned for the last time to Sardonicus. For your unclean threats, I said, for the indirect but no less vicious murder of this lady's parents, for the defiling of your own father's grave, for the greed and inhumanity that moved you even before your blighted face provided you with an excuse for your conduct, for these and for what crimes unknown to me blacken your ledger, Accept this token of my censure and detestation. I struck him forcibly on the face. He did not respond. He was standing there in the laboratory when I left the room with Maud. Chapter 9 Not God above, nor the fiend below. This strange account should probably end here. No more can be said of its central character, for neither Maud nor I saw him or heard of him after that night. And of we too, nothing need be imparted other than the happy knowledge that we have been most contentedly married for the past twelve years, and are the parents of a sturdy boy and two girls who are the lovely images of their mother. However, I have mentioned my friend Lord Henry Stanton, the inveterate traveller and faithful letter-writer, and I must copy out now a portion of the missive I received from him only a week since, and which, in point of fact, has been the agent that has prompted me to unfold this whole history of Mr. Sardonicus. But my dear Bobby, wrote Stanton, in truth there is small pleasure to be found in this part of the world, and I shall be glad to see London again. The excitements and drama have all departed, if indeed they ever existed, and one must content oneself with the stories told at the hearthstones of inns, with the flames crackling and the mulled wine agreeably stinging one's throat. The natives here are most fond of harrowing stories, tales of gore and grew, of ghosts and ghouls and ghastly legends, and I must confess a partiality to such entertainments myself. They will show you a stain on a wall and tell you it is the blood of a murdered innocent who met her death there fifty years before. No amount of washing will ever remove the stain, they tell you in sepulchral tones, and indeed... It deepens and darkens on a certain day of the year, the anniversary of her violent passing. One is expected to nod gravely, of course, and one does, if one wishes to encourage the telling of more stories. Back in the eleventh century, you will be apprised, a battalion of foreign invaders were vanquished by the skeletons of long-dead patriots who arose from their tombs to defend their homeland and then returned to the earth when the enemy had been driven from their borders. 
and since they're able to show you the very graves of these lively bones, how can one disbelieve them, Bobby? Or they will point to a desolate skull of a castle. The country here abounds in such depressing piles and tell you of a spectral tyrant who, a scant dozen years before, despaired and died alone there, deserted by the minions who had always hated him. The frightening creature roamed the village, livid and emaciated, his mind shattered, mutely imploring the succour of even the lowliest beggars. I say mutely, and that is the best part of this tall tale, for as they tell it around the fire, these inventive folk, this poor unfortunate could not speak, could not eat, and could not drink. You ask why? For the simple reason that though he clawed most horribly at his own face, and though he enlisted the aid of strong men, he was absolutely unable to open his mouth. Cursed by Lucifer, they say, he thirsted and starved in the midst of plenty, surrounded by kegs of drink and tables full of the choicest viands, suffering the tortures of Tantalus, until he finally died. Ah, Bobby! The efforts of our novelists are pale stuff compared to this. English literateurs have not the shameless, wild imaginations of these people. I will never again read Mrs. Ratcliffe with pleasure, I assure you, and the ghosts of King Hamlet will from this day hence strike no terror in my soul, and will fill my heart with but paltry pity. Still, I have journeyed in foreign climes quite enough for one trip, and I long for England and that good English dullness which is relieved only by you and your dear lady, to whom you must commend me most warmly. Until next month, I remain your wayward friend, Harry Stanton. Bohemia, March 18. Now, it would not be a difficult feat for the mind to instantly assume that the unfortunate man in that last tale was Sardonicus. Indeed, it is for that reason that I have not yet shown Stanton's letter to Maud, for she, albeit she deeply loathes Sardonicus, is of such a compassionate and susceptible nature that she would grieve to hear of him suffering, a death so horrible. But I am a man of science, and I do not form conclusions on such gossamer evidence. Harry did not mention the province of Bohemia that is supposed to have been the stage of that terrible drama, and his letter, though written in Bohemia, was not mailed by Harry until he reached Berlin, so the postmark tells me nothing. Castles like that of Sardonicus are not singular in Bohemia. Harry himself says the country abounds in such depressing piles. So I plan to suspend conclusive thoughts on the matter until I welcome Harry home and can elicit from him details of the precise locality. For if that desolate skull of a castle is Castle Sardonicus, and if the story of the starving man is to be believed, then I will be struck by an awesome and curious thing. Five days I occupied myself in extracting a liquor from the South American plants. During those days, dogs were carried dead from my laboratory. I had deliberately killed the poor creatures with the undiluted poison in order to impress Sardonicus with its deadliness. I never intended to, and in fact, never did prepare a safe dilution of that lethal drug, for its properties were too unknown, its potentiality too dangerous. The liquid I injected into Sardonicus was pure distilled water, nothing more. This had always been my plan. The ordering of materia medica from far-flung lands was but an elaborate facade 
designed to work not upon the physical part of Sardonicus, but upon his mind. For after Keller, Morignac, Bonagente, and my own massaging techniques had failed, I was convinced that it was only through his mind that his body could be cured. It was necessary to persuade him, however, that he was receiving a powerful medicament. His mind, I had hoped, would provide the rest, as in truth it did. If the tale of the spectral tyrant proved true, then we must look upon the human mind with wonderment and terror, for in that case there was nothing, nothing corporeal, to prevent the wretched creature from opening his mouth and eating his fill. Alone in that castle, food aplenty at his fingertips, he had suffered a dire punishment which came upon him, to paraphrase Sardonicus's very words, not from God above or the fiend below, but from within his own breast, his own brain, his own soul. So that was Sardonicus by Ray Russell from the book Haunted Castles. I picked that book up in Newcastle in the Waterstones there, just by the Gray's Monument right in the middle. Uh, that was a while ago. I even think that was pre-COVID. But I do really like Ray Russell. I think he's a great master of the language. Um, he uses a lot of rhetorical devices, which I like. I went through a period of uh, analysing everybody's prose. I would get books every every day. I would write the first couple of pages of a book out, and then I would go through it and analyze the sentence structure because I was that kind of a nerd. I don't know if you've noticed I put a bit of reverb on the story, not on this, so this is flat. Uh, the story has a little bit of reverb on it, and I copied that from me and Gordon of uh, Horror Babble. So they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and I hope he takes it as such. I was in some slight trepidation, and still am, about uh, doing a Ray Russell story because... It is an homage because I really think it's great. This is one of my favourite stories. Uh, it's so gothic. It's so absolutely gothic that I love it. And I'm a big fan of the gothic. Probably of all genres, I like the gothic best. I like a bit of weird fiction, you know, Lovecraft and stuff, as you know. And I like a bit of the classic ghost stories. E.F. Benson, M.R. James, we do those. But I love me a bit of gothic. So if we can have a classic story that has a castle, a strange aristocrat or rich person, a damsel in distress, weird servants, seclusion. Um, I just I just posted, you know, I'd done Dracula and it was members only uh, for probably a couple of years. Well, I don't know how long it's been since I finished it, but a year and a half anyway. And uh, so I put it up on Bandcamp. I've just started a Bandcamp thing to try and I need the money, see? So, um, it um, you know, because I'm cutting down my hours in my proper job, so I'm doing everything I can to kind of, oh yeah, begging ball out again, never mind. You just enjoy it, just enjoy the stories, we won't talk about that anymore. Um, so, yeah, so the story is, I think what's really good about it is, I think a, a number of things about it, but I think, you know, Ray Russell wrote for Playboy magazine, and you remember in the, I, I don't know if you do remember actually, my dad used to get it. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, it was trying to be this kind of GQ. It, was, it had a bit of grooming. It had pictures of watches. It had people smoke, smoking um, uh, cigarettes. And it was all about being uh, a proper, like, uh, what's his name from uh, 
Mad Men, you know, the, the advertising guy, forget his name for the moment, being that kind of man in the 50s and 60s and 70s, I suppose. And so Ray Russell wrote for them. And I think um, possibly that is something to do with some influence on the, the, that curious, but, but actually probably integral to the story um, passage of how he's going to torture poor old Maud and there are there are hints of all sorts of sadomasochistic dungeons there. I don't know actually what Ray Russell's own preferences were in that area. Um, somebody might know, Well, presumably they do. It's probably all dead, but uh, I don't know. And but it made me wonder if that was his kink. I believe they used to call it in the day. Um, I don't know what to call it now. But anyway, so there was that. And I'm sure that uh, the ladies in the audience, of which more than half of you are ladies who are listening to this, are women. One of the big problems of what you call women these days is what do you call women? So um, there's uh, that business of somebody cropped up. Young, young women don't like to be called girls. But to me, it was always a very standard usage. A, a, a young woman was a girl, that was what a, like a signet is a young swan, you know, like a puppy is a young dog. Oh, that's the other digression, of course, he kills the dogs, doesn't he? And, he, and he's prepared, he does it on purpose in order to set the psych- psychological scene for Sardonicus himself. We'll probably come back to that, we may not, if I, I may digress off into a spiral and may never return to it. So I was saying about the, what, what you call women, and I remember once, um, years ago, I was doing a, a, a TV thing for um, uh, some channel that never, I don't know where it went. It was one of these s- satellite channels or, you know, cable channels that disappears into the hundreds. And uh, th- this guy came up and he met me at Dalston Hall near Carlisle. And uh, he was with t- um, his, his sound guy. He was the director and cameraman, I think. Or maybe he was the director and sound guy. And there was a cameraman. And there was this very media uh, woman. Uh, and if you've met London media people, you know what I mean. My first wife, oh God, I'm really getting into digression now. My first wife, she was, a, she was a theatrical agent and we used to go to lots of parties. We used to go to lots of theatre and she would just walk out if they were rubbish because what they were looking for, the actors were looking for representation. So we would, she would go and she would report back. She was the assistant theatrical agent and she would report back to her boss and say, you know, this actor who sent us his CV so that we'd be, we'd be his agent, he was good or he wasn't good. I went to see some good stuff and went to see some dreadful stuff. I remember once we had to pretend the car was clamped because we met the family or something of the actor on the way out. It was in like the Lyceum on the Strand or somewhere like that. And I had to say, oh, my car's been clamped. We've got to go. So to make things up. Anyway, the point is we'd go to these meetings and um, they would come up to me. And I wasn't in the show business at all. Uh, and they would say, are you in the biz? And I go, oh, no, no, no. And they would just actually, without another word, turn and walk away. I was of absolutely no use to them. So I wasn't even worth saying, oh, goodbye, sorry, blah, blah, blah. They just turned and went. So media people, I'm sure they're not all like that. I, I, I've had friends who are actors who are quite decent people. In fact, yeah, indeed, Ben, Matthew, people like that. But um, these lot, you know, in, in the, I think the London media people, are, they're like um, piranhas, really. So anyway... Back to the story. So there was a ghost. We're doing a little bit about ghosts, obviously. And uh, the guy came, and he was Scottish as it turned out, but he was living in London. And he brought up his cameraman, let's say, and this media lady. 
And uh, there was an issue about it. He said, I said, I'm sorry, I've just been for a pie because I was starving. So I stopped in Wigton on my way and got a pie. And he said, oh, I wish I could. I wish you could have a pie. I said, well, why don't you have one? He said, well, you can't be seen to have a pie. Now, pies are very trendy now. Nowadays, pies are extremely trendy in London, but they were not then. And, and if you were somebody who worried about their um, public appearance in, in a certain world of the media types, the loveys, uh, you couldn't be seen having a pie because it was very working class and um, provincial. So he was a Scot, you know, so that counts as provincial. And then the conversation went on and I said, oh, you know, the lady, you can't say ladies. He says, south of about Birmingham, you cannot say ladies. Everybody's women. They're just women. They're not girls and they're not ladies. So anyway, that, that's, that was all about ex- explaining why I just called you ladies. Some of the ladies will not be happy about Mr. Sardonicus because he wasn't a nice geezer. And, he, and I think the thing was... Ray Russell was really good in that he played on our sympathy for Sardonicus and we oscillated between, or vacillated, oscillated probably, between sympathy for him because he has, it's a terrible thing. You can't blame a young man wanting to have some money when they've been so poor uh, that he digs his dad's grave up. He just, he's not doing it out of badness, he's just doing it for the way, for the lottery ticket. And, you know. You have to ask yourself that question. If it was a big win, like literally probably millions now, would we dig up our recently deceased loved ones? Some of you are going to say no. Me? Mm, I reserve judgment. It's a lot of money. But anyway, so uh, so that will put you off him. He was a bit of a cat and a bounder, but it ended nicely, didn't it, because our, our Mr... Sir Robert Cargrave, because he's a gentleman, and a gentleman and a doctor, and he, he's with Maud, and they're happily, and they've got two beautiful girls who are the image of their mother, because in fact, let's face it, in the, oh, wow, this is dangerous territory. You know, in that view, the only thing a woman could be is beautiful. I don't, I don't share that view. I've got daughters. I've got very independent daughters, and I've got a very independent Sheila, and I've got a very independent mother, and my grandmother was... Loved me to bits, but was rock hard. So um, I've been, and I work with a lot of nurses, uh, and uh, and I always have been. So I, I, you know, I'm not saying it's me, but um, they, they, it's certainly. Um, I think I'm just gonna get off this territory now, because it's becoming too dangerous. As long as you accept my bona fides, uh, it's uh, it's not me. The other thing, of course, is um, uh, the dogs. Oh, blimey, Ray. Right, blimey, blimey. I've talked about that uh, film with Colin Farrell, The Seven Psychopaths, where they hijack all these dogs. It says you can get away with anything. You can stave somebody's head in with a brick, but do not kill a dog in your stories. And, you know, I often say that, I mean, people, am I safe with people? Humankind, who is listening, it's just, this is all made up. These are, these are horror stories. It's supposed to be horrible things happening in them. I mean, if we had a horror story and nothing horrible happened in, it wouldn't be a horror story, would it? It would be, you know, a child. It would be a Disney. Oh, Disney's gone a bit dark these days, but, you know, it would be a Disney story. It would be um, Baba the Elephant or something. Or a Chitty Chitty Bang was quite dark, funny enough. Pinocchio, mm, that was quite dark. But you know what I mean? It wouldn't be a horror story. 
Um, so, and, and please be aware that uh, no dogs were actually harmed in the writing of this story. Really, really, really. And Ray, I don't know about Ray's view about dogs. I, you know, I've got the Don't Water Haunting, which gets listened to. I had yet another comment. You know, I re- when the dog disappeared, I realized Tony was no animal lover. I always say this. I think I said this in the last one as well. So obviously, riled me that much. And uh, like, that's just nonsense. It's made up. It, can't you understand the difference between fiction and reality? Because if you can't, come and see me in my other role and I'll give you 20 milligrams of olanzapine. And uh, then you won't get about your seat. We, we stray into the ethics of um, psychopharmacology then, of which I'm prepared to talk at length in the pub. But for that one, you have to buy me a pint uh, and I'll tell you what I think about it. We can probably guess what I think about it. Um, it has its place, uh, but it should not be used lightly. Okay, where we'll be killing dogs. I, I I had been doing this, I probably still am doing this late night talk radio, and I'm kind of talking about like English customs in some of it. And it so happened, it was dog whipping day. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. Because what I do is I, do, I record the episode and I open this book called um, The English Year, and it's about customs. And the dog whip, there was a dog, there were dog whippers and they were from the middle ages to about the 1700s. They're employed keeping stray dogs out of um, church. And if you think stray dogs are no big deal, you should go. I remember reading this article about, I think it was Nairobi. Uh, there are packs of wild feral dogs. And I think I'm correct in saying this outside the town. And they're a real danger to children and infirm people. They'll kill and eat them. So, you know, stray dogs aren't... I mean, Shade is a lovely dog. And Shade and I wrestle and um, we cuddle and we do all these things. But if she... <laughs> I can't see her being in a pack of wild dogs. I don't think, I don't think she's tough enough. But, um, you know, tough dogs. Yeah, so dogs. I love dogs. I'm sure you love dogs, but you wouldn't want to be stuck in the countryside with a pack of wild dogs, honestly. So. Um, like psychopharmacology, dogs have their place. So getting back to Ray Russell and his story. So it was, an, it was a nice story. I, I love his language, really. Um, I love the gothicness of it. Um, and I'm, I am kind of worried that somebody's going to go, you can't read this on YouTube because of copyright reasons. And I'm saying, but it's for my mates. That's you. And uh, it's an act of love because I really love the story. And, uh, you know, hopefully um, more books will be sold. Maybe people will go, oh, I'm going to buy that book, Haunted Castles, by Ray Russell in uh, Penguin Books. And they're going to buy them, you know. And it'll be good. It'll be good. It's free advertising. But the algorithm might get me. So if this gets taken down, I get dragged off. There we are. um, I'm doing this all wrong, you know, because I usually talk about the story. I say something about Ray Russell and the author, and then I talk about the story. And then I um, ramble and I've kind of, I'm just, my rambles are getting more pervasive. If that's the word, invasive. And uh, so I'm rambling all the time. Guess where I'm, I'm, one of the reasons is, and one of the reasons I'm probably talking so fast is Halloween's coming up. I am so busy. I've got stories to write, to perform, venues to book, websites to do, podcasts to record. And today Sheila said, do you want to come to the woods? Well, if Sheila says that, you don't want to refuse that because we were going foraging. So um, 
I said, what, what's, what do you have to? And she said, fly agaric mushrooms. I said, well, I know about those. Those are the big red ones with the white spots on that um, are in all, you know, if you imagine a, a gnome, uh, that, that's the kind of mushroom he's sitting on. And uh, they're the, the, the best looking mushrooms, I think. And I, funnily enough, you learn a lot of stuff from TikTok. And there's a guy who talks about foraging on TikTok. He just does like a plant. Uh, and he had Gelder Rose one night, and we thought it was red currants, and it was Gelder Rose. So we've picked some of those, and she's going to put them in a, we're going to have it at Christmas or something. She's making a woodland sauce with these Gelder Rose things in. I'm sure we're going to pick the wrong thing and die. But um, if if I do, there won't be any more podcasts. But that's not going to be till Christmas, so don't worry. She gave me a woodland drink tonight. <laughs> I have no idea what was in it. It's the stuff that she found in that I probably picked from the bushes. Uh, and because I'm colorblind, these red mushrooms don't jump out for me like they do for her. Anyway, we got some. And this guy on TikTok had said, um, they're not poisonous, poisonous, but they make you really sick. It's kind of poisonous, I thought. And he said, um, they're also hallucinogenic. And, oh. And he said, what used to happen? If this is true, I hope you're not easily offended. You probably aren't if you've come this far. Basically, the reindeer or the deer would eat them and then they would be sick and then they would go off their faces on the hallucinogenics and they'd be tripping reindeers. And uh, reminds me of something like having the Mighty Boosh. I used to love the Mighty Boosh and Noel Fielding and Julian Barrett and all of that crowd anyway, you know, Richard Ayoade and uh, what's his name off? Um, oh, come on, Matt Berry, yeah. Um, what we do in the shadows. Matt Berry's insane. Oh, the toast of London. I love Matt Berry. Anyway, I love all of that. So it's like something off that they would do, the deer eating these um, mushrooms and then um, spacing out. And then they wee. And apparently people in Siberia, I don't know how, how anybody knows this, they would collect the reindeer wee and because it's taken the sickness out, but you can still get hallucinogenic off it. And then the shamans of the tribe, according to this bloke on TikTok, would eat the mushrooms. They'd be a bit sick, but that's shamans. They do that kind of thing. Look at peyote, um, ayahuasca and all that. And then they would wee in a cup or a bowl or a cauldron. And the tribes people would drink <laughs> the shaman wee as a hallucinogenic drug. Well, I said to Sheila, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm not. I'm not partaking in that. And, she, and the other thing about fly agaric is you may not know it's called fly agaric because people used to cut pieces of it and put it in milk, and it would attract flies who would then die. So if your house was full of flies, you got the fly agaric mushroom, you chopped it up, put it in milk, and it was like fly paper but not sticky. So anyway, I said to her, "What are you going to do with this?" She says, "I'm going to make a tincture." <sighs> I am worried, and. Before I was recorded, she shouted up. She said, uh, I'm going to the off-license, that's where we buy liquor, to get uh, some vodka from a tincture, my Flyer Garrick tincture. I haven't heard from her since. So when I finish this, I'm going to go downstairs to see see what's happened. But I don't fancy the Flyer Garrick tincture. I don't at all. Anyway, that's what we were doing. And then on the way back, she said, we'll get some crab apples and we'll get some... Um, hawthorn berries because they're really ripe i i came back with my left pocket full of um sweet chestnuts i already threw a load of horse chestnuts out the other day 
my right pocket full of beech nuts and some acorns and then a bag full of crab apples, windfall crab apples. And I went out the back between us and the river. There's kind of a bit of rough ground. There are a few trees, but mainly it's kind of scrub grass. And I strewed all my different seeds. I put some apple seeds from Glastonbury as well, eating apples. So I said, I want this to be known as Tony's Wood when I'm gone, because it'll take about 20, 30 years for it to grow. Anyway, there we are. It's, it's, I've been late with this. Oh, I was going to say, I'm, in, I'm a bit of a pickle because I usually have episodes stacked up. Now, I've got one for Halloween for you called um, The Stalls of Barchester Cathedral, and that was um, sponsored by um, Gavin Critchley, who's a, who's a great patron of mine, who um, he said to me, look, here's some money. And I went, okay. And he, I said, what do you want to do for me to do for it? And he says, well, I always want you to do I want you to read your story. And we pick a story, and uh, between us, he suggests it, and I go, okay, but he, he'd take a veto as well. Um, but I didn't veto it. It stalls the Barchester Cathedral. That's coming out on Halloween. But I've got um, about another two to do, so I thought sardonic, as I said I was going to do that. I did uh, Basil Netherby last week. So I'm on a bit of a roll, because these are both stories I really like. Um, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. I was thinking of uh, The Smoke Ghost by uh, Fritz Lieber, or another Ray Bradbury... Because, of course, Ray Bradbury did a book called The October Country, and that would be... And I've done The October Game, which you'll, if you search, you'll find. Oh, the other thing that, that's happening a lot now, because there's, there's about 200-odd videos up, or 200-odd episodes up, and um, people go, oh, I'd love you to do The Snow Pavilion by Angela Kartik. I've done it. I'd love you to do Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Done it. I'd love you to do Christmas Carol. Done it. You know, so uh, have a look first. Just search and you'll find probably I may have done it. Anyway, that's it. I've got a, a bought a new microwave and uh, it came bizarrely with a £50 wine voucher and Swan Microwaves designed for life. Thank you for your purchases. £50 to spend on some out-of-the-world wine. Well, you have to go online and, and then it turns out you have to pay a bit more wine. But I'm thinking like, I don't really need 12 bottles of wine because if I buy 12 bottles of wine, I will drink 12 bottles of wine, not all at once, but I like drink once. I'll, be, I'll drink about two or three a week. It's not good for you. So I'll keep away from that. That is just another random thing that's triggered by what I can see around me. I'm going to stop looking around me because I need to stop talking. Anyway. Enjoy Sardonicus. I hope we don't get a copyright strike and taken down. But if we do, I'm going to say to Ray Russell, I did out of love, Ray. Not for money. This will make, how much, you may be interested in how much I make. Something like this might make um, $20, $30. Um, so it's not nothing. If you add them all up, it's not nothing. But uh, it ain't no fortune neither. So I'm not doing it for the money. I'm not telling this story for money. I'm telling it, as I said to Ray, or Ray's ghost. For love. Okay. You all take care. Call to action. What's my call to action this week? Oh, yeah, listen. Go and buy my um, Dracula on um, Bandcamp. I'll put a link in the show notes. I think it's $7. What's $7 now? And it's like 27 episodes. It's, it's 16 hours of work. Uh, and um, it's good. The story's good. And uh, the only thing... Oh, God, here we go again. I can never stop, can I? Anyway, so I will, but um, 
I have. You may notice I have one stock Eastern European voice. It doesn't matter in Dracula. I use it for Dracula. He's Romanian. I use this guy. He's Polish. Um, other other people are bit. Oh yeah, Van Helsing is Dutch. Um, and they all get this kind of roar. Lots of ours and. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Russell. I think you sound like a James Bond villain. So, yeah, I'm sorry about the stock. If any of you are Middle European, I'm, I apologise. I know you don't talk like that. That is definitely it. That's two hours long, this thing now. Peace and love. Bye-bye. You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come dies, back. Isn't that so? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well. 
which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barcud, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.